Let us pray together. Lord, we have come to you, seeking your face. We have sung your praises. We have confessed our sin. We have received your holy pardon. Now we seek your wisdom from the Holy Scriptures. As we engage with you through your word, reveal to us the light you have for our lives. Show us your truth. Lead us in the way we should go. May your word be a lamp unto our feet. May we follow your light and make it the light of our lives. Thank you for this wisdom. In Christ's name, amen. The Old Testament reading today is taken from Proverbs chapter 27, verses 20 to 21, and chapter 30, verses 11 to 17. You can find it on the pages 664 and 667 in your pew Bibles. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold but people are tested by their praise. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful, those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. The eye that mocks a father, that scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley. It will be eaten by the vultures. This is the word of God. Please go ahead and open up your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Be where our New Testament lesson is found. And um, as we go about this morning, I'll also be referencing a few other texts. And so if you have your Bibles open, that um, might be helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just the first four verses today. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This too is the word of the Lord. You know, I am continually thinking this one phrase, and I kind of walk through my day and sometimes think, we live in such a weird world. Like so many things in this world don't make sense to me. Um, most of them are just very practical and pragmatic. Um, but, but recently, I just started a, a book on church history, and I was looking at this, and, and, and this uh, professor, his name is Bruce Shelley, he starts out his book with this quote. 
Christianity is the only major religion to have as its eternal or central event the humiliation of its God. And it just boggles my mind. Why? <laughs> like, this just doesn't make sense. If I was, you know, maybe it's because I'm so competitive and I like to win. But I'm thinking, I would not, at the center of, of love or at the center of my message, have my own humiliation if I were God. I think, gratefully for all of us, I'm not God. Um, but, you know, here we are in church to worship this God. Here we are talking about this this creed that was written a really long time ago and that states that this God suffered under a man named Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, and descended to hell. So what do we mean by that? When When we recite this in the creed each week, what are we saying? Well, first, I want to begin by teaching the the text we just read from Corinthians and why the Apostle Paul thought it so important to reiterate this point at the end of his letter to the Corinthians. And, and, And so first, he starts out and he just says this, I just want to remind you all, before I'm done with this letter, there's two more chapters, he says, I want to remind you all before I'm done with this of the gospel, the good news. Can we ever get sick of hearing that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe you get bored of it, but I just don't. This is one thing that I will never get sick of hearing. That there is a God who loves me, who gave himself for me to make me free, to free me from the oppression and from the hard things of this world, to free me from the hard things of my past. I'll never get sick of it. I just don't know if I can ever get sick of hearing that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, don't ever forget that gospel. You know, we get into theology, we get into difficult subjects, but, but, but above all, first and foremost, and he says this throughout almost all of his letters, I continue to preach this gospel because this is so important. Why? Verse two, because it is by this gospel, because of this good news that we are saved. And as many of us in this room know we are saved from ourselves, aren't we? We are saved from our sin. We are saved from the stupid things we have done, from the stupid things done to us. We are saved from death. You know, church, never forget this gospel and why we need it. Never forget Easter. Never forget that each and every day we are saved from death because we have sinned, haven't we? As we confess each and every week, sometimes with different words and sometimes by different avenues, but yet we confess each week that we have indeed sinned. That the Apostle Paul was not being, using hyperbole when he says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, he was being quite factual. And so church, as we go on this morning, We're going to talk about some things, and it's a little confusing sometimes, but just remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church. I want to remind you of the gospel which you received and on which you have taken your stand, because by this gospel you are saved. And as he goes on then in verse 3 and 4, he reminds us of the events that we remembered on Good Friday, that this Christ did indeed die. That he suffered under Pilate and that he died, fully dead. And the creed is claiming that he was crucified and was dead. 
And when we think about death, death is difficult for a number of reasons. There is sadness, there is loss, but there's a separation. You know, with death, there's a separation, isn't there? There's a breaking of, of, of the physical and the spiritual. Something about death just seems like this wasn't intended to happen. And this ultimately is one of our biggest fears, right? Oh, the unknown. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's losing everything. Maybe it's just what might happen. But yet, church, our understanding of the death of Christ and the reason we, we, we clarify that Christ did in fact die and was buried is essential to our understanding of redemption. Because this Jesus didn't just die to, to check it off a list and then to raise from the dead, but that he actually did, in fact, suffer quite a great deal on our behalf. That he, in fact, in the garden the night before, desired another option. We all know this. He prayed for another option, didn't he? There was quite a lot of pain and suffering. And so in the creed, we make sure to announce that. We make sure to proclaim it, to say that we understand that he was crucified. We understand that he was dead and that he was buried, fully dead, all dead. You know, there's been some people who have claimed, oh, well, Jesus may have resurrected because he wasn't fully dead or because they took him down and they, you know, something that, some sort of loophole like this. Um, and and I, I don't mean to make light of our Savior's death, but I always think of the movie The Princess Bride when I think of this. And if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, you should watch it because it's fantastic. But there's this time when, when the hero of the, of the movie is dead. They think he's dead. And they bring him to a man named Miracle Max. And Miracle Max says, I actually have the quote here because it's so fantastic. He said, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still slightly alive. With all dead, well, there's only one thing you can do. And his friends say, well, what's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> and, and what made me laugh even more about that is this is exactly what happened with Jesus. He died, they casted lots for his clothes to take whatever he had left because he was dead. Jesus was all dead. And he suffered a lot on the way. So much so that this God who he was in intimate communion with for the duration of his life, this God whom he loved and served and was giving his very life for, he recites the lament in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the creed, we are saying that we indeed believe this. That Christ did die, that he did suffer, and that he was crucified. And then, and then we say this phrase that, that sometimes it gets a little tricky. <laughs> then we say, we believe that Christ descended to hell. Now the reason this phrase sort of throws some of us off is that word hell. We all have a different understanding. Some of us have a different theology. Some of us aren't quite sure what to think of this word. And I would even say, uh, just to add to some of the complexity, this phrase in the creed doesn't come directly from Scripture. You know, I was meeting with some people this week, and I mentioned that, and they said, well, sure it is. And they looked it up and thought, oh, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, and we started talking about it. 
You know, this word is a little different for us today. So let me just give a little bit of a, an introduction to this. And if you're curious about more, shameless plug to come and stay afterwards at coffee hour because we're going to discuss this more in our class uh, after service. But there's two main words used in the New Testament for this idea of hell. There's the word Hades, and then there's this word Gehenna, which is these two, there's one other one, but it's only used once. There's these two main words that, that talk about this place of the dead, this place of judgment, this place of separation. In the Old Testament, many of us may recognize this word called Sheol, that this is the place of the dead, the depths. You know, in Psalm 139, the psalmists write, where can I go from your presence? If I go down to the depths, you are there. This is what they're talking about. Jonah in chapter 2 says that he, when he was swallowed by the fish, was in the depths, was in Sheol, was in this place of judgment. And so in the New Testament here, we have this word Hades. And it's used as to simply describe a place for the dead, where the dead are. And, it, and the interesting thing for us is we think of good and evil as heaven and hell. But in the first century world, world Hades was sort of just seen as a place for all the dead, the good and the bad. All who were receiving judgment or who were in a time of waiting. And in Jewish culture, this, this understanding was a time of waiting for the Messiah to come and redeem them. And so what we're claiming to believe here in the creed is that Christ went to this place of the dead because he fully died. That when Christ died, he fully went through the whole process and went to this place of the dead. Now, his soul went to a spiritual realm that I have never been to. <laughs> I am not totally sure. But consider Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 16. I would encourage you to look this up at another time, and you can read it if you have, and it, have the desire to. But in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable of a rich man and a, and a, and a poor beggar named Lazarus. Side note, very interesting, that this is the only parable where Jesus ever uses a name. But that's another discussion, I think. And both the rich man and, the, and this poor beggar Lazarus have died. And it says that very clearly in the same language, that they were dead, fully dead. And so Lazarus, it says, this, this poor beggar is at Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom being comforted in this sort of good realm for the dead. And then the rich man is in a sort of different realm, but, but in the same type of place, far off, and he calls out and says, will you please help me? Please comfort me. And a long way off, this rich man is asking to be comforted in his pain in this place. And Abraham replies to him and says, I can't help you. And in fact, there's a gulf, there's a chasm, there's a, there's a break between us that, that I can't even get to you. And the rich man says, well, then do me a favor and go tell my brothers and tell my family about this place. Tell, me, tell my family about this separation that we can't cross so that they don't end up in the same fate as me. And Abraham says, they won't believe me. They have, the Mo they have Moses and the prophets and that should be enough. See, Jesus gives this parable and it helps us understand what this Jewish perspective of what this place was, this, this death was. To think about Hades, to think about hell, to think about all of these things, to understand what the scriptures were talking about is a place uh, of waiting, is a place of waiting for Christ to redeem, waiting for, for God to redeem his creation. There are those who are being comforted. There are those who are in torment. But it's all sort of in the same place.
And today as Protestants and evangelicals and since the Enlightenment, many of us are thinking about eternity. That you go one road and it's for eternity and when we think of hell, we think, well, Jesus went to some realm of lake of fire and all of these things. But this just isn't exactly what it says here. We actually don't know what happened. Because if you think about the cross, what did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and some of us may also think of the, the passage from the first Peter chapter 3 where it says that after being made alive, Jesus went and proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits. But again, it doesn't give us, Peter doesn't give us anything else. He doesn't even use the word Hades or hell. He just uses the word prison. So then, when we talk about this, what are we saying? Theologians, if people have argued this point for a very long time, did Jesus go to, 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 to Hades? Did Jesus go to Gehenna, this place of, uh, it was different? Did he go to hell as we think of it for eternity? I don't understand. What are we saying? When we proclaim this in the creed, we don't know the exact details of where Jesus went. What are we saying and why do we say it? Church, Jesus Christ suffered and died on our behalf. Jesus Christ not only died here on this earth, but went to experience some sort of afterlife, this place where, 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 where people are and where people are waiting for Jesus Christ to redeem. And he suffered and he went through the entire punishment of sin and death on our behalf. There was full death there was full suffering. There was this full anguish of, of having sin thrust upon him though he knew no sin. And as we believe, talked about last week, he was born of Mary. He was a man and he understood what this was so that we don't have to. See, Christ died and he entered into all of our fears that come with that. In Christ's death, he conquered all of our fears that come with the unknown. As we read in the Proverbs, there are things that are never satisfied. And one of those things is death. That death is never satisfied. It always, it never says enough. And yet because of Christ, we know that that's not the case any longer. It lurks out there waiting. And we feel afraid. But we understand what Christ was saying on the cross by quoting the 22nd Psalm and lamenting that in the end, our God will be victorious. I love what it says in John 19 in the account of the crucifixion. It says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stick of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So first, Jesus gives his body for our sake. And then he gives up his spirit to God. He says, I willingly give this. I willingly give up my spirit and all that I am in this violent process of death. And what did God see? In this place of judgment, in this place of afterlife, hell, Hades, Sheol, whatever you want to call it, God saw his righteousness. And as we'll talk about next week, there was resurrection and there was victory. And because of that, we are promised the same. He gave his body for our sake so that we would have hope. 
And while death may conquer all and while death may never be satisfied, all of our best plans on earth, all of our best effort on earth, all of our ability to control and to provide, to be strong, falls short at death without Jesus. But with Christ, we know that we can endure. We know that we will last forever. We know that there is hope. When I think of the cross and when I think of Christ's suffering and death and descent into hell, I think of the ultimate act of love. That God himself poured out his wrath on his son for my behalf. What a great God we have. So then, as we wrap up, if we believe this, what do we do about it? What do we do, church? I want you to look back at our passage in Corinthians. In the first verse, Paul, I think, gives us a little vision of what we ought to do. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Church, we remind ourselves of the gospel that we would take a stand for the gospel. Church, we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ did suffer under Pontius Pilate, did die, or was crucified, did die, was buried, fully died and went through this process bearing the weight of sin so that we might take a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the goodness of God in this dark world. That we would stand for what we believe to show this love of God to others. To prove, in fact, that death is not the end, that we should not fear death because our Lord has conquered death. Christ suffered, Christ died, he was buried and descended to hell bearing the full weight of our sin. The question we must ask is, will we stand for this? Will we trust that Christ has done this for us? And as we respond with our lives, consider this. Where do you need to take this stand? In your life, where do you need to take this stand? And many of us immediately think of something. (laughs) We all know our lives. We all know our weakness. We know where we don't stand up for the gospel. Where is it? Maybe it's when you're alone, you need to stand up for the gospel. Maybe it's when you're with peers and friends, you need to stand up for the gospel. Maybe it's with your family, you need to stand up for the gospel. Maybe it's with your money, you need to stand up for the gospel. Maybe it's with your time. Maybe it's at work. I don't know. But Christ endured death so that you don't have to fear it anymore. And if we don't fear death, what in the world could happen to us? How can this world win if its best weapon is rendered useless? If the darkness's best weapon of death is rendered useless, how can we lose? This is why I am so glad that at the center of our religion at the center of this Christian life is our God being humiliated so that we would have victory. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we trust you. We also acknowledge it's difficult. We acknowledge that it's scary and we acknowledge that it's unknown. But as we move forward to stand for this gospel that we have believed, Father, We pray that you would equip us to do the things you have called. To make your word a light 
unto our path, to give us wisdom and understanding through the power of the Spirit. And Lord, that when we have difficult questions, Father, that we would seek out your truth, that we would find light. Lord, thank you. I thank you for Christ. I thank you for his willingness to suffer on my behalf, that I would not have fear, but I would have hope. May we all, Lord, remember that truth. Let us have hope. Lord, take the fear from our hearts. We pray this in Christ's matchless and powerful name. Amen.